strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, let's start with the announcement. We played this a little earlier, but we're going to do it again. It is the announcement of the, the rate hike by the Fed. This is the head of the Fed, Jerome Powell. In light of the cumulative tightening of monetary policy and the lags with which monetary policy affects economic activity and inflation, the committee decided to raise interest rates by 25 basis points today, continuing the step down from last year's rapid pace of increases. So they are saying we are slowing down, but we're not stopping. We are going to continue to increase rates. Uh, they say it's not the last time. They don't believe. Um, so he talked about the inflation data. We need we need more data. The inflation data received over the past three months show a welcome reduction in the monthly pace of increases. And while recent developments are encouraging, we will need substantially more evidence to be confident that inflation is on a sustained downward path. So that means we are going to see further increases. Now, whether they will be at 25 basis points or smaller than that, probably not. But it was at 50 before, so they've cut their rates in, or the rate of increase in half, but they're still doing it. So this is him talking about the economy and what they are seeing. Although the pace of job gains has slowed over the course of the past year and nominal wage growth has shown some signs of easing, the labor market can continues to be out of balance. Labor demand substantially exceeds the supply of available workers, and the labor force participation rate has changed little from a year ago. So what you are seeing is they are going to slow down the job market as well. This is what gets scary for a lot of people because the only thing that's saving them financially because of the huge increase in prices is the availability of extra work. You can get the side hustle that you need. So the idea is to bring down prices. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not telling you anything you don't know, but the idea being let's reduce prices. But at the same time, if you're reducing the availability of jobs, which one is faster? And that could drive you into the recession that they're so worried about. And if people are running out of their discretionary income, that's that's the only for me, as simple as I think that for me is what it all boils down to. And it starts with the working class and it ends with the working class. I believe that luxury is always going to be luxury. Wealthy people are going to spend on luxury items. Luxury tends to do well. There are times it comes back a little bit or you know scales back. But for the most part, luxury remains strong. But when you look at working class people, you look at their discretionary income. I think they are the drivers of the economy, the average economy. How often is a family able to go out to a restaurant or do they just eat in? Do they do they go and pick something up and bring it home? Um, are they cooking more often at home because they can't afford to go out or they're afraid to spend money on going out? That's just some of the basics. What you tell your children no to. What do you say no to? And things that would be valuable for your child that you know would be valuable for them, but you don't have the financial means to do them and they're not a necessity. And you start reining in everything that's not a necessity. That hurts the overall income over and over again. How do restaurants deal with like people are dealing with this huge increase in the cost of food? So restaurants are paying more for food. They're paying more for a labor force. Their energy bills are going up and they're losing some of their customer base in many areas because the people can't afford to go out. So a restaurant has to weigh to weigh this and say, wait a minute, how far are we going to be able to raise our prices to maintain our profit margin before the customer says, I'm not paying that much money for a meal, whatever it is you're selling and no matter how good you are. 
Now you've seen places like McDonald's profits go through the roof. They raised their prices a little bit, but comparatively to other places, not so much. It is still a very inexpensive option to feed a family. Kids love McDonald's. You've seen their profits go up. Walmart stays strong. Weird thing, Amazon is seeing you know profits go down, but you are seeing them begin to cater to the people that are doing the layaway options and things that it's not. They're not they're not catering to the higher end customers. They're not uh, or the higher priced items. Um, They are changing the way they sell groceries. They're going to start making Amazon Prime members pay a fee for I think it's under one hundred and fifty dollars worth of groceries that are delivered to your home. So my point is they're making dramatic changes. And Jerome Powell is talking about these rate increases until they start seeing more data on inflation. That inflation is tracking downward toward that 2 to 3% range where they say is acceptable, and it's still much higher than that. We are still seeing, although a moderating of the inflation rate, it's still very high. So, you know, as the average consumer, you hear these numbers, but what the average consumer looks at is today's Thursday. Tomorrow is payday for a lot of people. And uh, whether you get paid weekly or biweekly, let's say tomorrow's payday. Today's Thursday. How many people within the sound of my voice have already been onto their bank account, whether it's on the app or on your computer, to check your balance to make sure you're not overdrawn so that when the bank money hits tomorrow, then you're able to pay your bills. But right now you're not so sure. And what about gas for your car? This was the day I always dreaded when I was working back when you would get a real paycheck and it wasn't direct deposit was, you know, it's Thursday. I'm almost out of gas. Uh, Do I buy lunch or do I just go grab a hot dog at Circle K or do I buy lunch or do I throw an extra couple of bucks in my gas tank to make sure I've got enough gas to get to work to get my paycheck tomorrow? I lived through that. As a young person, it was something that I dealt with. It was a reality of living paycheck to paycheck. The the idea that if I have a flat tire, I I don't have the money to buy a new tire. I'm going to be driving around on that little tiny spare. And or if something were to happen to my vehicle, not only can I pay to get my vehicle fixed, I don't even have enough money to get my vehicle towed. That is a financial disaster. So for some people, whatever that cost is, I, I, not too long ago, um, I was I had put for whatever reason I had two tires worn out on my vehicle, and I have specialty rims, so it, it, it's more expensive, and it was a lot of money. So I replaced those two tires, and within a couple of weeks, I ran over a big stone in the road on Forty Fourth Street near Indian School, and it blew my tire, blew one of my front driver side tire. And there was a time in my life where that would have been a disaster for me. Getting that to a a place to buy tires, paying for a tire would have wrecked me. And there are so many people that live in that world and you find out when gas prices go up, it puts you even in, in a deeper hole. So this is why these decisions are so important. The politics of them are real. The policy arguments and conversations about who's to blame and what can be done, those are valid to some degree, and some of them are just plain American politics. But in the end, it's you and me. It's how do we get through the day? How do we get through the week? How do we get through the month? Um, Are we keeping our heads above water? Are we advancing in our life? Do we have the ability to do that? And all of these questions remain because people are just not sure right now. And hopefully it's changing. I hope that what we're seeing is turning of the corner without diving into a into a recession. 
Um, what we're going to do in just a moment is uh, we're going to talk about female athletes because female athletes are now stepping up and having conversations about transgender athletes in women's sports. It's not necessarily popular with the cancel culture, but we'll let you hear what they have to say coming up here in just a couple of moments. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. One of the best concerts I ever saw, ever in my life. One of the best concerts I ever saw. Um, taking me back to my childhood. This is one of those bands that I can shut my eyes and remember where I was when I was listening to this music. And uh, it's amazing. I saw David Lee Roth solo three times when he left when the, he left the band. It's just it's it's such a great band. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, never mind memory lane. Uh, this is an interesting topic because it involves emotion and it involves a lot of emotion and it, it usually conjures up a lot of anger. I'm going to tell you where it's passionate for me in a moment, but I'm going to read to you something from the story first. Female athletes sound the alarm about trans athletes in women's sports. Um, February 1st marks the 37th annual National Girls and Women's in Sports Day, which celebrates the achievements and progression in women's athletics since the implementation of Title IX. And so the concern is you have someone that is biologically and anatomically male identifying as a female that is playing women's sports. And it is, in my opinion, damaging the sports. I have two nieces, both of which are or were great athletes when they both were in middle school, elementary, middle school, and high school. Uh, my oldest niece still is a barrel racer. She trains with someone that is a uh, an NFR qualified barrel racer, a national finals rodeo, one of the best in the country, probably one of the best in the world. She trains under her. She's learned to train horses from her, but she was a basketball player and a soccer player when she was in high school and younger. She's now out. She'll be 21 in March. My uh, The middle niece, the middle child, but the, my middle niece, superstar basketball player. She's decided she's left playing basketball. She's a gym rat. She's an athlete. She's in fantastic shape. And watching those girls play sports when I would go home, my family lived for sports. We just do. My brother and his wife, now they have a son that's still in high school. He's a basketball player. He's the only freshman or he's one of the only freshmen on the varsity basketball team. Um, And it's fun to watch their athletic prowess, to watch all of them, the boys teams, the girls teams, all of it. And those girls understand that, especially in women's sports, there isn't a huge market in a lot of the sports, except for soccer now and the WNBA. There are not a lot of professional level sports that once their college career is over, if they aren't going into an Olympic team or onto an Olympic team, that there isn't a lot out there professionally for them to do as athletes. So. When they are at that college level, that is the highest level for them many times. And even if it wasn't, if for many people, especially, you know, we look at the men's sports, many of them, just a small number of people go from high school on to college sports, even at the Division three level or JUCO level. And even fewer go on to play professional sports. So it, there, it is a finite amount of time that you get to be an athlete. 
When you factor in the physiological, the physical differences in an anatomical male playing in some of the women's sports, recently there was a a volleyball game that was forfeited because they had an anatomical male, a a trans athlete on one of the teams that spiked the ball so hard it broke a girl's nose and it injured her. It injured her. There are safety concerns here. Uh, you know, you have some. You have a, a the famous one about the swimmer. You, know, you have somebody that isn't ranked hardly at all in men's sports, and so decides I'm a trans athlete. Not decides I'm trans, but says I'm a trans athlete. I'm going to go swim on the women's sports and is winning first place and beating women. It's not fair. It's not right. And 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 that's what these women are saying. But it's also very unpopular. People call you transphobic for saying it, and that's what I want. Want to address are some of these differences in everyday life the argument about trans people and their rights is largely about comfort and hear me out um, there was I've told this story before there was a, a trans woman in Scottsdale that was very well known she actually was on the worked for the city council I don't know if it was a volunteer position or not but had a position with the city of Scottsdale there used to be a very iconic bar in Old Town called Anderson's Fifth Estate. Very iconic place. Everybody knew it. It was a legendary place in downtown, in Old Town Scottsdale. And a, a group of, of trans women were there, and there was another group of people there, women there. And a woman went into the bathroom, and there were trans women in the, in the restroom. And she complained to the management and said, I don't feel comfortable with men with anatomically male people, men, in the ladies' room. So they asked them not to go into the ladies' room. I think they even asked them to leave. I'm not sure. They threw a fit because they weren't comfortable in the men's room. Their comfort level was that we're more comfortable in the ladies' room. So here's my question. Whose comfort wins? There are girls in high school and even before that, you know, listen, guys have the same kind of issues, but we have body image. But with girls, it's truly a thing, body image and how they look and being shy. And and it's a part of growing up and maturing. And you've got girls that are going into a locker room that are changing clothes, sometimes in a setting, in a gym setting that's not in school where they're changing with adults. And it's anatomically a male that doesn't feel comfortable in the men's locker room. So they're given the option of the girls' locker room. And when the girls speak up or parents speak up and say, I'm not comfortable with my daughter changing in front of an anatomical male or vice versa. She shouldn't have to see that. She shouldn't be made to feel uncomfortable. So I asked the question again, whose comfort wins? And I've not said one negative thing about somebody that's trans. They have a right to live the life they want. But we all have a responsibility to each other. If you want understanding from someone, you have to extend understanding to someone. You have to understand, especially in in the cases where you're an adult and there is a child there, you have to understand their feelings. You have to understand that they have a right to feel the way they do. And when that's put upon, it's interesting to me. The argument that we've heard forever has been about you can't put your laws on my you can't, you know, make me live your life. You're right. But then now the the reverse is also true. You can't force someone to believe like you or think like you. You do have the right to be left alone, but you don't have a right to force people to change and think differently. It just was a fascinating thing for me in that story. 
Here's the question. Could Maricopa County divide into four separate counties? And should they? Well, I'll let you know what the proposal says next. And strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. How many of you did the whoop when you heard the song play? You just can't hear that song without singing that part. It's the only part I can sing. Um, appreciate you spending part of your Thursday here. Interesting proposal. It's happened once before. It's being proposed again in the legislature, I believe, again by Jake Hoffman, uh, Senator Jake Hoffman in the state legislature. And it, it would divide Maricopa County into four smaller counties. Uh, now, I will tell you at first glance, I don't know what the purpose of this would be. I, I have all the negatives in my head. I and I, you know, I haven't talked to Senator Hoffman about this specifically, and I'm going to. Um, but it is interesting. So here's the way it would be divided up. Uh, if passed, Maricopa County would cover the bulk of Phoenix and it would be surrounded by three new counties. Hohokam County to the southeast would center around Gilbert. Muggion County would cover Scottsdale and parts of North Phoenix. And Odom County, like Tohonta Odom, the Odom County would take up the West Valley and less populated southwest parts of the existing Maricopa County. So this is Senate Bill 1137 proposed by, yes, by Jake Hoffman, Senator Jake Hoffman. It faces scrutiny in the Senate and a possible veto from uh, Governor Hobbs. Uh, HCR uh, 2018 proposed by Representative Alexander Clonadin would sidestep the governor's desk and take the issue straight to the voters in 2024. Here are the issues in my mind. Again, I don't have the whole story. Would love to hear why they think this is a good idea. Um, when we, when it comes to schools, when we talk about schools, we talk about reducing the number of school boards that would reduce the oversight, oversight costs for school districts. It would shrink the number of board members. It would shrink the number of superintendents and the oversight staff, the administrative staff. Um, and it would expand the size of school districts. This would do the opposite effect. So if you think about this, um, they would have to fund three more sheriff's departments, three more boards of supervisors, three more county recorders, and all those county offices would have to change. Uh, There would be dramatic changes to make this happen. So with that in mind, it would have to be something really important to be considered. And I don't understand, and, and again, this is ignorance on my part, I don't understand because I haven't had the conversation with the people that are doing it yet. I'm going to, and I may bring them on the show to talk about it. Um, What would be the purpose? What is the benefit in doing this? Um, And it's it's funny. I'm looking at the story now. Most immediately, residents in three of the four new counties would see their property taxes shoot up um, as state government swells to match these new counties. Arizona would have to fund three new boards of supervisors, new sheriff's office, uh, a new county court system, and the list goes on. Uh, With an analysis by the Joint Legislative Budget Committee, estimates costs would start at $155.2 million a year. For the new county officials and staff, while it's impossible to predict the new property tax rates at with any certainty, the JLBC said Muggion County and Scottsdale residents therein would be the only county that could have lower rates. Um, and so 
Maricopa County is huge. It is a big county. It's bigger than some states. Um, but is that a reason? What would be the benefit of shrinking it? Um, so um, they talk in this. And this is where, again, I talked earlier about about journalism. There are things in here about election denying and all this other stuff. Um it says, what would it mean? So here's what the, the person that wrote this story said they believe kind of it means. It would, it would shrink the, it would weaken the voting power of the Democrat leaning Maricopa County. It's not changing the number of voters though. So in statewide elections, it's not, you know, it's not changing things. And as it is now, Maricopa County is home to more than 4.4 million residents. According to the 2020 census, the county famously went blue in the presidential election and the gubernatorial election. Under the propositions, they would have the following populations. Maricopa County would drop down from 4.4 million to 1.7 million people. Hohokam County would be 1.1 million. Muggion County would be 745,000. A little over that, 745,100. And Odom County would be 639,300. The new county lines separate the Republican-leaning East Valley from the more Democrat-leaning Phoenix Center. But no matter how you slice it, the Phoenix Metro still holds roughly 65% of the state's population. Um, So – this is interesting. The reason why I say it's interesting is because I can't think of, and I'm anxious to hear because I want to hear from the people that think this is a good idea, what they believe the necessity of this is. Why would this be popular with the voters? Why would it be good for Arizona? What? And in the end, that's all that matters to me. I'll be honest. <clears throat> you know where I stand politically. I am a Republican. No doubt. I'm a conservative Republican, especially fiscally conservative. I'm a lot more socially libertarian. As I get older, um, I have very strong beliefs, but I don't think the government has any business. I don't think the government needs to know what's in your nightstand. Let's just leave it there. And um, I, I, I am always going to remain and retain that feeling of conservatism, especially in the people I vote for and the government I want. But in the end, it has to be good for Arizona. This has to be good for everybody. Uh, And I don't know that it's about politics. I don't have that answer yet, but I'm going to get it. But I would love to hear from people um, that think this is a good idea and why. Because I I don't know what the advantages are unless it's to break down a political – I don't know what it is. And I want to find out. I'm anxious to find out what proponents of this think the benefit to Arizona is. And it's got to be a benefit that's worth spending $155 million plus per year on the new staff in the counties. And if people's property taxes are going up, I would just say to you, I'm never going to be in favor of that. I pay enough in property taxes, I think. Um, so it, it, it's interesting, and I keep saying the word interesting because I can't think of a better way of saying it. I'm not completely dismissing it, but I'm looking at it and thinking I can in my mind before I read all of the story, it popped into my head what was going to be a problem for me. Now I want to hear what the benefits are, being open-minded that maybe they'll change my mind. We'll see. We shall see. Um, We're going to go – I talked earlier about advocacy journalism. I want to go back to that topic because advocacy journalism I think is dangerous. And and, and you're you're hearing – and I'm saying this as someone that if I were a journalist would be considered an advocacy journalist because I am all opinion. You're getting my opinion in everything I say. Um, And so we'll talk about the differences and why I think it's important. That's coming up here in a couple of moments. (laughs) 
strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Had a little conversation about this earlier today. It's about what they call advocacy journalism. And what it is, it's funny, I, and I this is what I how I started this off when I talked about it before. I have been very emphatic in saying to everybody, I am not a journalist. Uh, I am... An opinion person. I mean, I, I, if I worked for a newspaper, I would be considered an editorialist. Um, if I worked, um, if I were at the at, at the Arizona Republic, I would be along the lines of an EJ Montini. Um, <clears throat> And what they do there at the Arizona Republic, where they give their opinion, and they do a good job over there. The opinion givers at the Arizona Republic do a very good job of, of um, well, he does a good job of getting under people's skin. He's really good at that. But their job is different than the journalists that are out there. What's interesting here is it's a study that was done, and now you've got heads of journalism schools and journalism departments that are saying not only is classic journalism where people are, are objective, where the objectivity is is the point they're saying that it's dangerous that we they they now are putting the responsibility on themselves to be the story not just to tell the story and that's not what journalism ever was now i've never been a journalist but i've worked with the best journalism journalist in the business uh cronkite school cranks out great people in all fields when it comes to journalism but we have great people here that were graduates there and have worked their way up the ladder and deservedly so and i'm not that but for them, objectivity and accuracy are all that matter. It's got to be an important story that means something to the people that read it or hear it. You have to be objective and you have to be accurate. And they go to great lengths to be both. And that's what journalism is supposed to be. It isn't supposed to be about I like this politician and this is going to ding them. I like this politician and this might hurt their chances to get reelected. Or I really like this politician and this is going to help them get elected or reelected. That's not supposed to be a consideration. What's this going to do for the overall attitude of people? That's not the message we want to send. When you hear people say that, that's what people that are opinion givers do. I make no bones about what I do. I love what I do. I try to be as good at it as I can. But I say to everyone, don't take my word for it. Fact check me. I love when people check me and I have conversations on Twitter where people disagree. And I love it. I absolutely love that part of the job because that's a debate. There shouldn't be any debate in journalism. What I mean by that is when a journalist takes a story and they write about that topic an event that happened. Let's go with the Biden uh, scandal, the Biden of documents. Um, would you say that there were two different kind of journalism and how they went after Donald Trump and how they went after President Biden? And there are many people that would say yes. And if you look at cable news and I'm doing the air quote thing, you absolutely saw a different attitude toward it. A journalist is supposed to give you information, and there are many of them that still do a great job. There are many people that still do. More documents were found at the Biden residence. The Biden administration said this about it. When asked, they didn't answer. When this, It was just straight down the line, this is what happened. And when you have people that are advocating in that profession that that's dangerous, that you should be an advocate for something as a journalist, I think you are jeopardizing journalism and it's not what it's meant for. So the Hunter Biden thing is one of the things I have in this pile that I talked about. It turns out 
that the Hunter Biden laptop was real all the time. Hunter Biden himself has come out now and admitted that it's real. There were so many people that were polled that said, had I known that that laptop was real and not some Russian disinformation, it would have affected the way I voted in the presidential election. President Trump lost Arizona by 10,000 votes. Alters an election. You had the FBI going to Facebook and saying this is Russian disinformation, or at least this smells like in advising them. Facebook said one of the biggest mistakes they ever made was pushing that down based on the advice of the FBI. But when journalists intentionally either hide stories or promote stories based on their political beliefs or moral beliefs or that's not journalism. Now it's called advocacy journalism. And I do think it's dangerous. Um, Not dangerous as in violence, but dangerous as in people come to you for information and what you're giving them is either false information, inflated information, but certainly slanted or jaded information. And I would love to and I'm going to have private conversations with people um, here in this building that are journalists. I would love to get their opinion on this um, because maybe I'm making too much out of this, but there's a difference. I come on the air every day, as does other people that do this for a living. you got Gatos and Chad in the afternoon here, um, and there is a difference. I come on right after Arizona's morning news. And it's right after Jamie does uh, the news expansion for 15 minutes. That news expansion is information you need to know that's part of your day. I was listening on the way in this morning of the replay of Jim and Jamie's interview with the head of APS asking about rate increases they're requesting, the timing of it and the spending of money and why you're doing it and what's it going to mean. That's great information for APS customers to hear the head of APS answer questions about why are you raising rates in this economy? What justifies that? Why are you spending money on the governor's inauguration and on advertising and other things? That's information and news. Now, if I were to interview the head of APS, I would handle it differently because I'm not just about getting information. If you notice, you don't hear them giving necessarily giving opinions on things. And that is the difference between really good journalism and what I do for a living, which is opinion. And when we start to cloud the two, if if KTAR News brought me on the air here to do this show and they build this show, they built it up and they sold it as the same kind of show as Arizona's Morning News, it's completely different. It's not the same. And if you sell it as journalism, I think you're doing a disservice to people. And that's not denigrating my job or the job I do. It's just different and not better, not worse, just different. And now you've got a whole branch of journalism. They're now admitting in journalism schools and journalism departments that it's dangerous to be impartial and objective. I think that's scary. Coming up just after 11 o'clock, we're going to talk about policing, the losses in policing in major cities and the fallout it's causing. We'll talk about that next.